0: This is the Mormon Women Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Welcome back to the Mormon Women Project Podcast. This is Meredith Nelson, and today I'm sharing an interview with Nyland McBain, who is the founder of the Mormon Women Project and author of Women at Church, Magnifying LDS Women's Local Impact. Nyland is also the CEO of Better Days 2020, an organization dedicated to celebrating Utah women's history by popularizing the past in creative and communal ways. So, Women at Church was published three years ago, and this seemed like a good time to revisit the topic with Nylon, including some of her more recent experiences. We discuss some hard things in this podcast, but both Nyland and I come from a place of very strong faith in the gospel and commitment to the church. I hope some of the things she shares here will be a benefit to those struggling to understand and improve gender relations in their wards and stakes. One last thing before we jump in. We are about to begin our annual social media fund drive for the Mormon Women Project. We're a nonprofit run entirely by volunteers, and we need money to keep our website running and to pay interview transcribers. If you have ever loved or shared a Mormon Women Project interview, please consider donating in any amount at www.mormonwomen.com. We are so thankful for your support. Hi, Nylan. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So I was visiting with two other LDS women recently, and the conversation turned to, quote unquote, those women who struggle with the place of women in the church. And I just listened as they talked, and they weren't unkind at all. They were were sad for those women, and they couldn't understand how a woman in the church could feel this way, because they themselves have always felt perfectly content and empowered in the church, and they love the church and the gospel. Um, So I didn't get a chance to speak up during this exchange, but if we had the time and you were sitting there with all of us, I'm curious, what is the story or the stories that you would share with my two friends? You know, I'm grateful that you started off
1: with a picture of that particular audience, whether it be male or female, those people in the church who are perfectly contented and who are not, you know, necessarily having the same experiences or perspective as some of those women, because that's exactly the audience for whom the the book "Women at Church" is written. It's written as a as a guide for for people who uh, would really, you know, genuinely like to understand some of the social dynamics of our our culture specifically as they, uh, they relate to gender issues right now and uh who who really want to make a difference and it's also written for people who who want to understand how to explain their own feelings um how how can they explain to people who don't understand why it is that they're feeling what they're feeling and why they're experiencing what they're experiencing so there is a there is a real disconnect and you know as i as i say in the book i think that there are really six reasons why those women are experiencing those particular feelings of frustration or disconnect. Um, And I'll go into those, but I want to just start by saying that my own personal experience, I'm not sure that I've ever had a full-blown crisis of faith about the position of women in the church, but I come from a particular background that makes me incredibly sympathetic to it and allows me to see it. In full color, while still sort of gratefully clinging on to this gift of faith that I think I've been given personally, to just always be able to know that, you know, I'm better in than out. It's better for me to be in than it is for me to be out. So I think I, I've inhabited a kind of unique area in my life where I do have a gift of faith, I think, where I just want to hold on with all my might. But on the other hand, um, I hadn't. An unusual upbringing in New York City. Um, I was the only child of a pro- professional woman. Um, I went to an all-girls school, and yet I was, you know, still very active at, at at church as I was growing up. And so I've always had sort of one foot in and one foot out of church culture, and that has allowed me to really gain empathy and and understand and and sympathize with a lot of these these issues that those women are really struggling with and and wrestling with. And so I, I would say for my for myself, my own experience, uh kind of my own impetus for for studying what some of those disconnects are and what some of those frustrations are came as a gradual process. I went to Yale for college. Um there was a wonderful church environment, I thought, but for some it wasn't strong enough. And for many girls, we we lost them right as they came to college. They kind of looked at coming to Yale as an opportunity to escape the church rather than to Cling to it even more, as as I did, and so in the as a member of the Relief Society presidency of my student ward, uh, I saw these girls, you know, make a make a very conscious choice to follow after a different path, mm-hmm. and very make a conscious choice to not hang on to the gospel or to the church, and we didn't really have as many levers to pull with those girls as the men did with the boys. So for instance, you know, they weren't preparing for missions at that time. The girls, you know, there was no emphasis on girls doing missions. We couldn't sort of drag them to church Sunday morning with with that hanging over their heads. We couldn't ask them to pass the sacrament, which got a lot of boys out of church on Sunday mornings. We didn't have the same emphasis on the Uh, as, as home teaching. Um, So we weren't asking the boys to go give students blessings. I mean, we weren't asking the girls to go give students blessings like the boys were things like that. And I, and I had a wonderful leader at that time who, you know, was, was pointing these things out to me, but at the same time expressing frustration over them. And it was a time of a tremendous spiritual growth for me, but it was also a time of sort of awakening to this gender culture that I hadn't really been aware of Growing up in New York, that was then followed by some very specific experiences with friends leaving the church in my young adulthood because of gender issues and so eventually, I decided you know that this was something I really had to wrestle with myself, and I had to figure out why it was that I felt so confident as a woman in the church, even though you know I was pursuing professional degrees and and it was important to me that that I have a career and that I have equal partnership with my husband and with men in my lives and so I've sort of dedicated my my adult life to wrestling with why it is that, you know, some women do not feel that sort of sense of peace as the women that you referenced in the beginning do.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I want to follow up on a couple of those ideas. One is that I was a Relief Society president in my 20s as well in a singles ward, and I had the same realization that the... 18-year-olds coming into the Relief Society and in my ward didn't seem to have the same sense of ownership and place mm-hmm. in the church as the as the men did, and um, it was really hard even just to get people interested in, in coming to activities, let alone doing their visiting teaching. Right? There just wasn't this sense of ownership that I witnessed in the elders quorum. Um, and another thing is that I think, you know, you talked about how you are not in a faith crisis and haven't been. And I, th- I think that one of the mistakes we make when we have these conversations is that we stick each other into these boxes. I think there are people who would be surprised that you can believe that the church has room to improve and that there are things we need to be doing better and differently, and yet that you're not having a faith crisis. Um, and th- I think the two women I was with would have been surprised to learn that I am one who believes that we have room to re- improve in the way we represent and value and use women in the church. But I am not antagonistic tor- toward the church. I'm fully active yeah. and I love the church and I serve where I'm called. I don't even identify as a woman in pain, though I understand why some women do feel pain. So I think I would only fit halfway into the box that they were building. Um, so it seems exactly like that's right. yeah, one of the mistakes that we make. Absolutely. And that
1: was one of the things that I wanted to do with the book. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that there are some things that we do in the church that are fundamentally mistakes. I I mean, there's no other way to put it. I think we do things wrong. Um, And that's very hard for somebody who, you know, for somebody, it's very easy for somebody to retort then, well, you're not following the prophet if you think that. And for me, that has nothing to do with it for me those are completely separate issues i think as an earthly organization run by human administration we do things terribly wrong some things we do terribly right some things we do divinely right but but some things we do terribly terribly wrong and i don't i don't think i'm very certain that one of those things that we are not doing the same way that we would if we were living in a completely elevated, divine, eternal plane, is our gender relations. Um, we have very limited knowledge about what it means in the eternities, what gender means. You know, we see this, of course, this misunderstanding, this lack of information, filling into the LGBT discussions. That's you know connected, but separate from what we're talking about today. But I think there's just too many questions for us to say that we do everything exactly the way God wants us to do it in the eternities here and now. We don't we don't we 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 are learning, we're struggling, it's part of the earthly experience. I, I mean it would it it makes total sense in my mind for the Lord to put us in a situation where His church has to struggle and make mistakes and you know wrestle with things. And go through trials and fire and suffering as a church, because that is the purpose of earthly existence. The purpose of earthly existence is not to have this perfectly divine institution that just, you know, provides a, a sort of walled-off safe haven for everyone who who comes to it. No, in the church we are still wrestling. We're still dealing with the the limitations and the struggles of of earthly existence. And that's not to say that I don't believe in divine inspiration and 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 revelation. I do. I just think it's just the way it is in our personal lives. I think it's very hard won as an institution. I think it, it comes in probably fits and starts. I think it comes in these these little, you know, bolts of what Heavenly Father thinks are really important. And it's just a tender mercy here and a tender mercy there. I always say my testimony started off at the beginning of this process as like a big coal mine, like lots of energy, lots of good stuff, could power a lot of stuff. And now it's a diamond. It's just been completely like refined and chipped away. And it's just become really, really small, but tight and mighty. And one of the things that I've had to just discard as my testimony has just been sort of refined into this diamond is this idea that the the church is, is perfect and that all the leaders are working under daily inspiration and they are good good people they are striving for inspiration they are receiving inspiration but as a worldwide organization we are too unwieldy we are too chaotic we are too just large and imperfect at this point i think for us to ever comfortably claim like you know that we're doing anything perfectly so i think it's really healthy for us to have that generous attitude towards the administration towards the church and just See us all as, you know, members of this do-it-yourself church where, where we're all just doing our best to receive the revelation. And sometimes it will just come in these glorious tender mercies, but a lot of the time we're all just kind of doing our best. So, you know, that said, I want to go back to another point that you made about, you know, being in leadership positions for girls and women. I'm I'm actually in the new position of, once again, leading girls and women in my ward. So the only other time I, well, no, that's not true. I was in a, I was in a early society presidency in San Francisco as well, but in my, in the last 10 years, I've been in primary and gospel doctrine. So anyway, my point is I'm now young women's president and it's the first time I've been in a leadership position since I wrote the book, I'll say that. And so I'm seeing things with a new eye now and I'm seeing the way, you know, these things that I worked out theoretically for the book are now being put into practice and a lot of things are harder than I thought they would be. And a lot of things are easier. For instance, it's really easy to see the way our traditions and our culture overlook the young women in our ward. And as you said that the ownership is not being developed at this age, that has been the most startling thing to me being young women's president that I see so little opportunity for the girls to develop ownership, a feeling of ownership over the church, con- over their ward congregation and over the church. For instance, and on Mother's Day, and again, I, I'm working with great people who, you know, they put me in this position. They obviously received some sort of, you know, comforting feeling around the fact that I would be leading the girls in our ward. They're not scared of me despite everything. <laughs> um, but they, but you know, my, but on Mother's Day, even in the, in ward council, Who's going to pass out the chocolates to the mothers? Oh, of course it's going to be the young men. You know, it wasn't even didn't even cross people's minds that the young women could participate in standing at the doors at the end of Mother's Day handing out chocolates. And so, of course, I had to pipe up and say, I think the, I think the young women could do that too. You know, could all the youth do that? But the, it was so interesting to me to see the ward council's initial impulse just to be, oh, yep, that's just the kind of job the young men do. Yep, we'll just give it to them, you know. Mm-hmm. And similarly, just recently this summer, our girls went to a fabulous girls' camp, you know, months and months of preparation by the stake leaders. We had a lot of girls go. A lot of our our ward leaders went and sacrificed a lot to go. And I, I said to the bishopric afterwards, I said, could we acknowledge the people that worked on it? Could we have the girls who went to camp speak? You know, all this stuff. Yeah, sure, yeah, we'll work on that. And of course, the week that the scouts came home from camp <laughs> in Sacramento, I mean, they had all the scouts stand up who had gone to camp. They had all the scouts, Scouts stand up. They acknowledged all the leaders. There were prayers about how thankful we were that the scouts got home safely. (laughs) It was just -hmm. like, you know, all the announcements were about oh, scout camp is so wonderful. How many of the fathers and priesthood holders went up to scout camp this week? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So anyway, how about how about acknowledging all the leaders who went to girls camp? How about acknowledging those leaders that spent months planning it? You know, how about having all the girls who went stand up? There was nothing. So when I asked the bishop Rick to to highlight girls' camp, I also suggested that we have two youth speakers from, you know, picked from the girls who had gone to camp, um, and they were very open to, to that. And so we assigned two girls to speak uh, the next week about camp, and neither one of them showed up to church that day. So I learned a couple things that day. First of all, I was very embarrassed because I had gone out on a limb to say I want you know, the girls to be acknowledged and their experience to be acknowledged. And I want the ward to feel like they have an ownership over these girls and their camp experience. But there was nothing I could do to help the girls feel that responsibility and and ownership that we're talking about. There's nothing I could do to help those girls feel like if I show up to church and, and talk about my girls' camp experiences, the ward will be better for it. The ward will be richer for it. The congregation will, you know, look at these young women and feel more stewardship for them. Look at me and feel more stewardship for me. I, I couldn't make them feel that because this, the structure is not built to help them feel that. And so I, I just, I saw that lack of ownership that and that lack of community feeling, that lack of feeling like this is my community and I have to, I have to show up and, and represent that was missing. You know, it, it, that. That that feeling of ownership that we develop in our young women, it translates, it grows into our adults as well when we're older female members of the church. And I think that's a lot of the reason why we end up with some of this divide between, you know, those women you heard talking and those other women who, you know, are feeling some frustrations. Because there are some women who want to feel ownership. They want to feel like they have an expectation of influence expectation of influence is the way I define authority, it's small a, and I'm not talking about priesthood authority. I'm talking about authority within your community is an expectation that you will be able to influence something. And we train our girls from very early on not to have that expectation. And And that's kind of at the heart of what I'm trying to get at. When you expect to have influence over the administrative decisions of your ward, as a woman, you will very often be disappointed. Obviously there are some women in the ward who have tremendous influence. The Relief Society president, the you HMS know, president, primary president. But you know, part of my point in the in that I make in the book is at the end of the day it ends up becoming a statistical game, right? And you've got three women who have had fabulous experiences, hopefully had fabulous experiences. Not all do. I've had known many who have not, but who have that, that experience of being listened to and being you know, whose ideas are being incorporated. But when you have three women out of the entire ward who are in those privileged positions, it doesn't sort of counterbalance the sheer numbers of bishopric members and high council members and young nuns and, and elders quorums and high priests and Sunday school presidents and mission ward mission presidents and all of those other callings, um, clerks you know, that go to, to men. So, you know, a lot of women who I have talked to over the years have said, oh, you know, as as Relief Society president, I was, you know, right there with the bishop and I was heard and respected and loved. And, and that's wonderful. But those positions are few and far between. And very few women um, statistically have the opportunity to have those experiences.
0: Yeah, it seems like one of the reasons that we see individuals and groups turning to public campaigns and street activism around gender issues in the church is that there aren't a lot of reliable, formal channels for talking about these things and requesting change absolutely, and I'm very sympathetic to that, and that's
1: why you know I think a lot of people think that that my book is sort of not i don't want to say revolutionary but it's, it does not stampede the barricades or whatever the phrase is right it's not public activism, it's not knocking on doors, it's not a revolution mm-hmm. um but I'm very sympathetic to that, to that idea that, you know, sometimes you feel like you've done all you can and there's no place else to turn. I, my hope with the book is that those who are just starting out their journey of awareness or their journey of activism or those who you know are really dedicated to working on the inside, I, my hope is that it will give them um, more ideas, more doors, more permission to do the work that they feel is necessary.
0: Mm-hmm. So going back to the example of the leadership in your ward highlighting the scouts and the scout camp and the scout leaders and neglecting to do the same for the young women camp it seems like you know it's easy to to see how that could happen and to forgive it or understand it in the sense that the bishop and his counselors conducting the meeting are men and relate to the scouts and went through it themselves and so have a natural enthusiasm and excitement about it. So where else do we see similar issues based on the fact that the women leadership in the church is maybe not as visible and and doesn't have the same influence as the bishopric or the stake presidency members have? What are some other examples of of instances where that lack of visibility is impacting the women's experience in the church?
1: We can see a lack of female input in many different areas. One area that I think is the most obvious is in our Relief Society lessons. So the history of the Relief Society is fascinating and well worth studying, but in a lot of ways it's been a history of diminishment. And this is, this is a, a theme I feel really strongly about because the Relief Society, I believe, was established and has the potential to be a, an equal and, and, and balancing force for good to the priesthood organization. And instead, over time, over the course of the 20th century, really, it got subsumed into the priesthood organization. And I mean that both figuratively and literally figuratively, in the sense that, you know, priesthood is considered to trump all. Priesthood is considered the power by which the, the Church runs, and we do believe it is the power to act in God's name, but it's become so gendered that it's become almost exclusively male, and so that means our, sort of, the whole ethos of the Church is male, because priesthood is the power by which we act, and that pre- and that power is male, therefore the the whole personality of the Church is male. But I also mean it literally in the sense that the Relief Society, which started off as a its own organization that had the opportunity to call its own counselors and to act as it, as the first presidency of the Church acted, in the words of Joseph Smith, when he established it in Nauvoo, he 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 likened it to the first presidency. He likened the Relief Society presidency to the first presidency, and it was it they could call their their they could call their own counselors and kind of manage their own affairs and While those dynamics changed, they generally stayed a pretty powerful and mostly autonomous unit until the middle of the 20th century. And today, the Relief Society president, the generally Relief Society president of the entire church reports to a 70. Uh, She has limited exposure to the First Presidency and to the Twelve. And so I mean very literally that the Relief Society has been subsumed by the priesthood organization because administratively in the church office buildings, our organization, um, the Relief Society organization, does report to men. So I think you're going to see the influence of that all over the place. You're going to see it in where the women travel, who approves their travel, and in their speaking opportunities, and in their... Um, charitable appearances and in in the in the way that they invest their time and in the way they invest the institutions uh, the organization's money the Relief Society organization's money all of that has to be approved by men. But of course, as I mentioned, the most stark example is probably in our our lessons on Sundays. So um, the Relief Society used to have its own manual that was written by the Relief Society board. In the 70s and 80s, and there were there were a variety of different types of lessons. One of what, one was a you know a lesson based on homemaking and motherhood, but another was were lessons. Other themes of lessons were scriptures and and just betterment. There were there were lessons about sort of areas of knowledge that women should know about. Anyway, it was a, it was a pretty rich uh, curriculum. It was very domestically focused, to be sure, and it was very American focused. But there was a sort of ownership of women. It was written by women for women. Um, And of course, in the um, early 90s, I'm forgetting the date specifically, President Hinckley had the wonderful idea of making sure that the words of the prophets were in every LDS home. The church was growing. We had different cultures and countries that um, were being introduced to the gospel. And he wanted to make sure that the Latter-day prophets were represented, their words and their doctrine was represented and so at that time, we had this adjustment in the in the Relief Society and Priesthood curriculum where we received the teachings of the Prophets' manuals. What that means is that for the past 20 years, we've not had a single female voice represented in our Relief Society lessons. And I think that that's taken a toll. I think that that has really stripped the Relief Society of some of the um, dear sort of Sisterhood and the communal experiences that may our mothers and grandmothers might have had—I know from talking to some of those women that they dearly miss that unique camaraderie that came from learning as women. Now, I have a unique position on this because I went to an all-girls school for 13 years. I deeply believe in the importance of gendered spaces uh, for women to be able to explore their own experiences and gain their own knowledge as women. Some might not agree with me on that. From my experience, it was really important, and I believe that Relief Society can be that place, and it is that place for many women. Um, I think it is not having that same sacred effect on younger women, girls today, as it did on our mothers and grandmothers. And I think a large reason for that is because the curriculum is the same as the men. And I'm not proposing solutions. I'm not saying we should go back to the way it was. I'm not saying, you know, men and women should have necessarily different curricula. But I I mean, because I like the I I think there is something inherently kind of, you know, patronizing to say, well, the women can't have the same curriculum. We do Mm -hmm, because, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't like I was learning different things in my all girls school. I was learning the same things as the boys were. But I think there was something very unique that we haven't quite captured with this in over the past 20 years. Um, in having, We haven't maximized, we haven't fully used the potential of an all-women's spiritual body. And I don't, I don't have a solution for that. I'm not even trying to propose one, but I, I just think that potential is being untapped.
0: Yeah. And, it, and there's been, maybe partly due to that and maybe other forces, a disconnect with our history and the history of the Relief Society. And I feel like we've had kind of a renaissance recently, which I'm really excited about, of mm. of books being published that reconnect us, like Daughters in My Kingdom or other books that we've reviewed at Mormon Women Project, the At the Pulpit book and w- Witness of Women. Um, lots of biographies coming out and people doing Mormon women's history. And, you know, I... I hope that that goes as mainstream as possible that people really start to study because that path you just described is really obvious when you when you look at our history, so in some ways, the things that you propose in women at church and the things that that other mormon women 's groups are talking about are not progressive ideas but regressive. No. We want to go back yeah absolutely um, and
1: and and I, I, if I could just put in a little plug here, this I think this is the key and it's kind of what I've been working on myself recently. I, um, you know, after the book came out, a lot of people asked me, well, what's next? Like, you know, what's the next step in this conversation? What's going to take us to the next level? And for a time, I, I didn't, I just really struggled with the question because the only answer I could come up with was another trauma. You know, I mean, what, what really gave my, book sort of extra significance when it came out in 2014 was the fact that the church as a whole was dealing with, you know, what to do with ordained women. The Kate Kelly got excommunicated just a couple weeks before my book came out. You know, there, there was a trauma that was, that was inciting conversation. And if people, even if people didn't sympathize with ordained women or understand what was going on, at least they were talking about it. They were, they were being forced to ask themselves, what do I think about this? And um, I thought that was incredibly healthy, and it resulted in some really good things. And I saw a little bit of that recently when we only had one woman speak at General Conference. There was a huge outpouring to the church office building of letters, and it was really kind of a a wake-up moment. Again, though, a a trauma for a lot of people. I mean, I know people personally for whom that was the last straw, and they removed their names from the church because of that General Conference. I mean, it's horrible. But for me, when I was wrestling with that, I, I thought, what could be a positive thing that could draw attention to this conversation, but not have it be focused on suffering and or, you know, losing people, losing people? Um, and so I settled on our history and specifically this idea that Utah was the first place where a woman cast a ballot in the modern era. So this is overlooked in history books because Wyoming Legislatively gave women the right to vote a month before Utah did, in 1869, December of 1869. But the Utah legislature passed that same right to women in January of 1870, and we actually had the first election here in February of 1870, and Brigham Young's niece Sarah Young cast the first ballot. So what does this have to do with, you know, women in the church? Well, the women, the, the, the Mormon women of Utah. Over the next 50 years, until the nation as a whole got the right to vote, women in the nation got the right to vote, were some of the most visionary, progressive, hardworking activists you can ever imagine. Mm -hmm. And they were that because they were Mormon, because they felt like this was part of the business of the restoration, that they were responsible for finishing these were women who were leading not just the state, but the church. I mean, this was Sarah Kimball. This was women who became Relief Society presidents. Emmeline Wells was Susan B. Anthony's friend and right-hand woman here in Utah. And, you know, she became the fifth general president of the Relief Society. Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, Joseph Smith loved these women. They encouraged them. They gave them the opportunities to really liberate women in the 19th and 20th centuries. And, You know, that was a lot of the business of Relief Society in the late 19th century. So I'm now running an organization called Better Days 2020, pulling from Joseph Smith's statement at the founding of the Relief Society that the beginning of this institution is the beginning of better days for women of the world. We've drawn on that sentiment because it really was a rally cry for the women as they crossed the plains and arrived here. And as Eliza Snow reestablished the Relief Society here in the Salt Lake Valley, this is the beginning of better days. And they used that opportunity, along with you know a lot of other non member friends and and colleagues, to really bring attention to women's rights and make sure that in that time and in that context, women were listened to and incorporated and had that expectation of influence I was talking about before so because the hundred and fiftieth anniversary of that first vote is coming up here in Utah in two thousand and twenty. We are celebrating that, and we're also joining the national celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. So the 19th Amendment, granting women the right to vote nationally, was passed in 1920. So it's the 100th anniversary of that. And so those two anniversaries, we're going to have a massive statewide celebration. We're introducing a new educational curriculum to the public schools here. We're doing walking tours of downtown Salt Lake City. We're hoping to rename streets after Emmeline Wells, um, and do a lot of creative and advocacy projects around these uh, anniversaries. And it's kind of my way of, of taking that question of like, how can we keep this conversation going and hopefully bring it into a positive light? Of course, it's a statewide celebration. It's not exclusively about the church, but it will it will prompt some really heavy soul-searching, I'm hoping, mm-hmm. for those of us in the church when we look at this history and we say, you know, how are we honoring the legacy of those women and of those prophets and of those apostles for whom this was really important. How are we honoring that legacy today?
0: Listening to you talk about that makes me think about what I've been reading recently in some of the literature I referenced about the activism of these women and how they were, they were actively working to create this organization, the church, the Relief Society. They saw it as theirs, you know, and, and so in a set, and from their eyes, I think, it was every it was as much Emmeline Wells Church as it was Brigham Young's church. and yeah. as as much every sixteen year old young woman's church as it was brigham young's church. and and that's that's the energy that they brought to their callings. And you know, they would publish their own newspapers in their young in their little young women's group. So they were really active. And I feel like we've kind of progressively come become a little bit more passive, maybe because, Of the structure right now, where we don't have as much influence because we don't have as much leadership authority in the church as women?
1: I also think it it depends on the definition of obedience at the time and place that you're living in, right? I mean, because these women saw their activities as being obedient. They saw that proactive stance, that really innovative stance as being obedient. That's what they felt was Mm -hmm righteous living, right? And for us today, the concept of obedience has shifted to passiveness. If you follow the prophet, following is inherently passive, right? So you don't make ways, you don't start new programs, you don't kind of um, look at the needs of your local organization and meet them with innovative solutions, right? So obedience and righteousness is almost passivity. You make you make that choice to follow. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying that that's all bad. Obviously, it's not, but I, I, it's a very, very different ethos. I understand why we've made that shift, right? I mean, in the time of the church that we're talking about in the 19th century, you know, they all lived in the same place and knew each other, and, and it was just so small, right? And, and there was that kind of scrappy frontier, do-it-yourself attitude. And today, the church is very large, and, you know, leadership can't have every little ward in young women's off doing their own programs, I, I get that there needs, you know, the whole idea of, a, of correlation in the mid 20th century was to take this you know, global church and really streamline and, and, and sort of um, make it more uniform. But I do think it's really important to recognize what we've lost in the, losing that ethos of initiative mm-hmm. initiative as obedience.
0: I'm glad you brought up the international aspect of this, because it it could be easy for someone to read women at church and say, well, how does this apply to a branch in Kenya um, or New Zealand or Japan? And so obviously the conversation changes when we're talking about a global church, as opposed to when we're talking about an American church. So how should global considerations play into our conversation about gender in the church?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I have a couple thoughts about it. First of all, I know that on on the high leadership level, their responsibility is to the global church. President Uchtger specifically has talked about the, moving the body of the church towards Christ. And so I have to think that our global leadership is a little bit torn because other parts of the world are not as developed as America is in its perception of gender relations. And so I I know that they don't want to do anything that separates members in parts of Africa where perhaps women or wives aren't um, treated the way they are here from America, right? They don't want to move so fast that they lose some of those places for whom just simple treat your wife well is kind of revolutionary, Right. Mm-hmm. And I and I understand this. We have to move as a body. So that means perhaps we in America feel like we're moving more slowly. Other places in the world might feel like they're moving really fast. The most important thing is to keep the body of Christ together. And I respect and I appreciate that our leaders always have that in mind. At the same time, I've also heard that used as an excuse for um, why the church or why we as members aren't behaving in our most enlightened ways um, here in America. People will say, well, you know, of course the church is, it's saving women from their marriages in Africa. Like, you know, look at the amazing thing it does for women around the world and it's giving women more rights than they even have thought possible. And that, that's absolutely true, but that's no excuse for not reaching our maximum potential here in America. Even if our global leadership can't take the initiative to do that, we can. I think it's absolutely wrong to say that just because you know the gospel is freeing women from abusive relationships in Africa means that it's the perfect solution for women, or it's perfectly, it's perfectly structured, let's say, for women in America, too. The mm-hmm. truth is, in America, the church institution is where our children are learning gender segregation. So what I mean is, my girls growing up, ages 8 to 13, in their school experiences, in their social experiences, um, in their extracurricular experiences, there is almost nothing that is off limits to them, right? In professional experiences, I, my, my 13-year-old, you know, one day she wants to go into biomedical engineering. The next day she wants to be a Supreme Court judge. And she can do all of that, you know. She, uh, that's great. And she's the first generation, even even in my generation, growing up in an all-girls school, we were still, you know, there were still firsts. I still remember watching Sally Ride go up in the Challenger because she was the first female astronaut, and, and there were just still firsts happening. And those are few and far between these days. Of course, you know, first female president of the United States, I guess my daughter can do that, right? But that whole ethos of, like, I'm going to be the first woman to do something that doesn't even cross her mind. At this point, it's like, what am I going to do as a person, right? As an, as an, as an American as, And so my, my daughter, my 13 year old definitely struggles with this. She goes to church and, you know, she sees these kinds of things that we're talking about where, you know, her girls camp isn't mentioned. And yet all of, you know, there's like half a dozen mentions in, in, of scout camp or just the the whole idea of the passing of the priesthood, which is obviously, Uh, The sort of gateway issue for so many girls, you know, passing of the Um, sacrament, passing of the sacrament, and she definitely wrestles with these things. And and I, you know, I try and present a a very positive faith based attitude because I know she's going to have to wrestle with this herself uh, throughout her life. But that is an experience that is unique to to our our youth these days as they engage in the world around them. We have to be really really sensitive to to that and that disconnect you know between the lived experience and the church experience if we don't openly address that and have really good reasons why things are the way they are and if we don't show a really sincere effort to hang on to those girls and make sure that they they know that they do have ownership of the of the church and they do have influence then that disconnect is going to just drive more and more girls away.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the question, oh, oh, the question, oh. oh, the global church, on the one hand, absolutely, you know, the gospel frees, the gospel frees, the gospel frees women, The gospel frees everyone, but it frees women, and it did at the time of Jesus too. But at the other, on the other hand, it's no excuse for not continuing to better ourselves for the sake of our, our women and girls in the future here in America.
0: This has been part one of my interview with Nyland McBain on women at church. We continue the conversation on magnifying LDS women's local impact in part two. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of Mormon Women Project interviews available on our site, please consider making a donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us cover interview transcription and website support.